We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hello and welcome to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 72. One of my favorite parts of hosting this podcast is talking to so many different professionals in the industry and the winding road and unique story that got them to where they are today. I mean, each one is so different from the next. Our guest today is no exception as he has worked his way to the top and found unique ways to partner with some of the top professionals in the industry, like Rodrigo Pessoa, McLean Ward, and Jan Tops, to name a few. He now runs Double H Farm with his wife, Casey, and walks me through the dynamics of running this business with transparency and grace and just so much dedication to the sport. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest, Quentin Judge. So would love to get right into it. Would love to hear about how you first started in the equestrian world. I'm from Chicago originally, and I am not from a horse-oriented family at all. And I was always in love with horses, my parents said, when I was a kid. And it was kind of the only thing I wanted to do or see horses, even though I didn't have much access to it. So I started riding at a stable in downtown Chicago where the carriage horses actually are stabled and oh, wow. do the city street rides. And a couple, like actually Kent Sternton started riding there a bit when he was a kid also. So it's kind of this odd little pocket of horses in a non-horsey yeah. area. Yeah. I started there as a working student and did a couple lessons and then kind of moved on to different barns in the suburbs and out of Chicago after that. Awesome. So cool. And then did you grow up doing like the ledges and lamplight yes. scene? Okay. I'm from Southeastern Wisconsin. So that uh, was, that know, was well, me too. <laughs> yeah. Ledges, ledges was my first show and my first outdoor show was Lamplight. Nice. And I did, until I was my last kind of two years as a junior, I really only showed locally in the Midwest, in the B circuit. Okay. And I did a lot of Lamplight and Ledges. Love yes. it. Awesome. So cool. So at what point, I mean, what caused the shift that you're doing those shows and you're like, you know, I want to take this more seriously, do a little bit more with it. What happened in your life or what kind of shifts were made that made that adjustment for you? I think I always, even though I was, like I said, doing a very local level, I always think that I saw a path or thought there must be a path for me to be in horses throughout my life. Mm -hmm. And I didn't start riding until I was 13. So, you know, some kids start riding their six. So it's not, even from that point, I really thought like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm kind of meant to do this. So I took some steps to kind of find a way to get to like the next level. And I wanted to kind of see beyond where I was. And I had a great foundation um, in Chicago. I rode Kim Gardner at Perfective Farm. She's kind of my first real mm-hmm. trainer. And my family was not really able to financially support me with horses. And I was always a working student. And Kim and her team were very, very good to me and always let me work as hard as I wanted to and let me ride and you know even show in return. So I then felt like the first step was to get to Florida and to get out of the Midwest. Mm-hmm. So I called Alex Jane because at the time still, but you know, at that time, especially when the Maggie and Charlie and Haley Jane were juniors, mm-hmm. they were for sure the biggest, most successful barn that I thought of in the Midwest. Yeah. And I called Alex and kind of cold called them and I was, I don't know, 14 or 15 and said, asking a working student. And he did. Oh. Wow. Which was very scary for me. To actually yeah, oh my gosh. No. And I had to call him back. 
Okay. Or he said, I'll call you back, which is yeah. terrible. And I think he was just doing it to see if I really was going to stick to it. Anyway, oh, I was working with Alex and that and the Janes, which I learned a lot from them. That was my first way to get to Florida. And I kind of just kept looking for the next step and the next way to keep moving on. Yeah. Do you remember your first experience getting to Florida and, you know, yes. all of the dreams coming <laughs> very, true? <laughs> very clearly. I mean, I think for anybody, for any, you know, kid riding horses, especially hunter jumper world, like, you know, the dream to go to Florida and to go to WEF. And I was, as I said, I think my first year in Florida, I was 16. So I had been sitting in Chicago yeah. looking at, you know, bigact.com and looking at the chronicle results and seeing all these kids, you know, my age or a few years older. Devon and all these places. And it was just seemed like this Shangri-La to me to get mm -hmm. there. So I first got to Florida and I worked, as I said, for Alex, but he had a client, Marilyn Heaton, who had some adult jumpers and hunters. And I worked for her under Alex. So I would kind of ride her horses and help her to get her horses to the show ring. And that was my first experience in Florida. So and I kind cool. of went on different places from there. But yeah, it was the first time getting to Florida, just unbelievable for me. Yeah, that's awesome. So then once you experienced Florida, where did you find yourself next? And the road, the short version. <laughs> is I kind of I moved around a lot. I've only ever been fired from one job. So it's not because I was in okay. job. Okay, set but the record straight. I, I'm very lucky and worked for a lot of really good people. But I worked from Florida. I then started working for Missy Clark for okay. a bit. And then I went to work for Joe Fargis. Cool. which was amazing. And yeah. I went to Virginia with him. And from after working for Joe, who has kind of always been someone I really look up to and a mentor of mine, I then moved on to a barn in Maryland, Belmont Farm, which had mostly timber horses, like racehorses. Okay. And my job at the time was to take the kind of retired timber horses, which were only eight or nine at the time, get them jumping, show them kind of locally in Maryland, that area, and then we would sell them. Wow. And that's what I did. That was my last junior year working there. And they were very nice to me. And I, like, I was you know, living on my own. I was 17, but I was able to work really hard. And they gave me a horse that I was one of the horses I took to mental finals. And you know, it was nice. And from then, I went to work my, as a professional my first year for Jack Stenning and Linda Andersani in Maryland doing okay. all hunters. Cool. But that was my first taste of being a real professional, though I'd kind of been working as professionals for a couple of years. That was my first professional year. Got it. Starting at 13 years old, did you feel like you were playing catch up or did you feel like you were uh, to a point that you were like similar to your peers? How was that for you? Yeah, I definitely, I think most kids that I know and peers of my age, you know, they started riding their six, seven, eight, small yeah. ponies, all that. So I never did that. I actually showed one pony ever. It was my last junior year. It was a catch ride. It was crazy because I'm the height I am now. So <laughs> I always did feel like I was playing catch up. I kind of still do in some weird way, mm -hmm. but I, yes, I definitely felt like I was behind the ball, especially as a junior. I never even jumped. The highest I ever jumped as a junior was three foot six. I never even jumped the low junior jumpers. I only did the gotcha. expectation and yeah. children's hunters. So I, or junior hunters a bit. So I always like I was catching up, but I think I've made it for last time now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that I feel like a lot of young professionals go through that regardless, going through that transition of junior year to professional years. And what was that like for you? Like you said, you had been doing, you know, three, six, and all of a sudden you're expected to be a young professional and be perfect at everything and, you know, have yeah. all those stereotypes. How was that? I had a good, I'd say, transition into being a professional because, as I said, working for Jack and Linda, they had all hunters. It was mostly, you know, pre-green, baby green. I think we had one first year mm -hmm. and had clients who were doing the amateurs and juniors. So 
that was a great first step into Florida for me because Jack is a fantastic horseman and really knew what he was doing. And he had had a stroke about a year before I started working for him. Mm-hmm. And so my job was not only ride, I, mean, I drove Jack, I picked him up every day. I drove him to the barn. We went to Starbucks 10 times a day. He loved yep. coffee. I drove him <laughs> to get dinner. I drove him home. I got it. Took him to get his scratch off tickets. Linda's a Andersonis, you know, really famous judge. Yeah. She also had a shop, the cotton patch at the time that she would yeah. bring around to shows. So I would drive the trailer for her. So I did everything and it was a good step into being professional because I think both Linda and Jack knew that I was trying really hard to do the best I could for them. So they yeah. were nice enough to give me opportunities to show right away. And though it was, like I said, a couple of baby green and pre-green hunters, it was a really good first step. And I've seen a lot of kids, we talk about it, my wife, Casey and I, people that have worked for us or that we see who, you know, were big junior riders and had really illustrious careers and won medal finals and all this and that. And the step from being a professional for them, I think is really challenging. In my experience, I've seen because they go from having 10 horses a week to show mm-hmm. to nearly nothing. And they're yeah. kind of all of a sudden expected to not only know everything, as you said, but you know, find horses and find this. And it's just a big culture shock for them. So I actually think at the time I was foaming at the mouth to have one horse I could show and something. But now that I look back, I actually think I would have taken the route that I did again if I had to do it Mm -hmm. again. Yeah, I think that's that's good insight. That's a good point. So as you were kind of navigating those first few years as a young professional, what were some of the biggest influences in your life and in your career that ended up getting you to where you are today with Double H? I would say by far and away, the biggest influence to me was when I went to Europe. After that first year working for Jack and Linda, Jack's had a few health problems and the business kind of dissolved. And I found myself really without a job mm-hmm. right before that WEF. And I, Ralph Christo was very nice and gave me a job for WEF. And I thought like the next step for me is I want to get to Europe and see, you know, what that's like and make yeah. myself better. So I was very lucky to get the opportunity to work for Jan Tops at cool. Salt Tops in Holland. And I was there wow. for two years. Which How did you was, get in touch with that opportunity? At the time, my wife, Casey, we were just friends and she, she knew Jan from being in Europe before and just from riding the, a few of his shows in Balkans Ride in the summer. At that mm-hmm. time, the global tour wasn't what it is now. And Casey rode with Missy at the time, Missy Clark. And yeah. she and this Missy would take some clients every year over to do two or three shows in the summer and to do Balkans Ride. So Casey had kind of been, become friendly with Jan and oh. Edwina and she gave me his number. And I called him, kind of cold called him again <laughs> and had a interview meeting with him here in Florida. And he gave me a job, which was... Awesome. I, couldn't believe. And that was, and still I think forever will be for me, one of the most, if not the most important experiences in my career. Because I think, as I said, to do, you know, local hunters and equitation and whatever, and some things here and there, and then Mm -hmm. be just dropped into this intense program with, at that time, like Steve Gerdot had just left. Daniel Doyser's good friend of mine to this day started two months after I was there, Mm -hmm. you know, the year I was, the years I was there, Edwina went to the WEG and was fourth in the WEG. Like they were really all in. And there were a lot of riders there doing it very, very serious level. Jan's sales business was still pretty big at that point. Mm -hmm. And I just got to see how a true international stable was run from every aspect. And I was a groomer and I did everything from learning from their barn managers to their grooms, to Edwina, to Jan's trainers. It was just, it was amazing. And it kind of, yeah, selling horses and how they, Jan is kind of master it picking horses for clients. It was, it was really kind of all encompassing. It was 
like nothing I'd ever seen and gave me a complete different view on the sport as a whole. Totally. So when you were working with them as a groom, did you take a bit of a step back as far as riding or what did that look like for your riding? The way it worked at Jans, I think many stables, especially mm-hmm. in Europe, is you know, if you have different levels of riding, you have show riders and a home rider. And if you're a home rider there, you were kind of rider slash groom and you would do mm-hmm. a wheel do stalls in the morning and do everything. So again, I tried to work really, really hard. Jan was very, Jan was great and Dwina both. And they were nice to me. They, they had one horse. I think I showed two horses the entire time I was there over the two years. One was uh-huh. this cute six-year-old stallion that was approved. And I took him to the Seacliffs shows in Holland and I would drive him by myself to these wow. shows in the north of Holland that didn't go until like 1130 at night. Yeah. Sorry, it was crazy, but it was amazing <laughs> for me. Yeah. Um, so I showed that horse and we had one horse that Double H bought as a sales horse and left in Europe for a little while. And I rode her there, but I only showed a few horses there, but I would say still that was, even though I wasn't showing, I got so much out of that experience because I definitely didn't show very much there. Yeah, absolutely. So you come back and then what happened? So I came back, I would have stayed in Europe forever, but I thought I needed to be able to make it to the next level. And I had done this, you know, home rider job for a couple of years to make it to showing and for someone to give me a chance to show, I needed to be at an operation where I was able to show a bit and get back in the show ring. So I was lucky to get a job with Margie Engel. Mm-hmm. And I started working for Margie and for Hidden Creek, um, which Mike Blasky owns Hidden Creek Stable Farm. And I worked for them. My job there was to be Margie's flat rider. And I had four or five young horses from the Hidden Creek breeding program that I rode and showed and sold. Cool. And that's how I got back to the States. And I worked for Margie for about a year and a half, I would say. Okay. Which was also an amazing experience. Anyone who knows Margie would say, you know, she's a fighter and she doesn't cut corners. And she really, especially at that time, she had three or four amazing horses and she was, you know, winning at least one or two classes every week. Wow. And between Margie and her barn manager at the time, Craig Pollard, who's a good friend of ours and worked actually at WHS for a while, I really learned a lot from them also. Amazing. How was that transition for you for when you were coming back from Europe, you know, showing twice in two years and then uh, you kind of had to hit the ground running a little bit? Yeah, that was, it was interesting. I wouldn't say it was hard because I'd been in the States and I, you know, I obviously knew what I was, the shows in the States, but it was different. I'd come from such a big operation there at Yon's with really this focus on many different focuses from sales to five-star mm-hmm. shows and all this. And I got there to Margie, which was really the whole focus was Margie winning the ring, which she yeah. did. Yeah. So it went from this kind of, you know, four or five riders and this whole sales thing and this giant umbrella operation to kind of one person and yeah. this small team doing everything we could to make Margie as successful as possible, right. which was a different experience, but really instilled some things in me for, you know, myself and having a small team for my own horses later in my career, that there has to be a real team aspect if it's a big or a small operation. Yeah. So then after working for Margie, then where did you find yourself? Then I ended up at Double H. They were in need of a flat rider and like a little bit of a grease man. So you kind of love everything. Uh-huh. And I knew that, you know, Double H was a great barn and had a lot of prestige. And at that time, you know, McLean was going with Sapphire and there was right. just a lot of going on at that point. So I started here as a flat rider. My wife, Casey, and I were together at that point and things just kind of grew from there. If you have yet to hear about today's sponsor, I am so excited to introduce you. RiderZone is an online marketplace offering the best riding gear and accessories and backed by brand ambassadors like McLean Ward, Georgina Bloomberg, and our very own Laura Graves. 
The Equestrian Aid Foundation and Sam Shield America through RiderZone are joining efforts to support the equestrian industry during this difficult time. Sam Shield America will donate 20% of its sales each week to the Equestrian Aid Foundation Disaster Relief Fund to assist in their continued aid for our sport. You can participate and support this great cause by using the promo code EAFCOVID19. That's E-A-F-C-O-V-I-D-19 on RiderZone.com. That's R-I-D-E-R-Z-O-N.com. Thanks so much, RiderZone. Let's get back to the episode. So you started working at Double H and you were working under several people or what did that look like as far as your position goes? My job at the Double H has kind of always been as the second rider. At that point, when I first started working for Double H, Dara McLean had just kind of finished his first wave of horses, Double H. Dara Karens was the professional at that time. You know, he had night train Mm -hmm. and he was really on a roll with that group of horses. Cool. After Dara finished with Double H, then Rodrigo Soa started riding, you know, Rufus, also Night Train, Let's Fly, that kind of group of horses for Double H. I was riding some of the younger horses that had been coming up at that point. Cool. And after Rodrigo, then McLean kind of came back in as his second wave of horses with Double H. McLean is obviously still the first rider, but he had his own operation, his own business. It's kind of two separate farms. So I'd say at that point is when I, Casey and I were really starting to run the barn ourselves more. I was showing more in the Grand Prix myself. And we started to kind of transition Double H from more of just a private show stable into more of a business. Keep working to the run today. Awesome. So then what is Casey's involvement at Double H now? She runs it. <laughs> um, <laughs> the she, short answer. <laughs> so she really does. We split up the jobs and the tasks here kind of to both of our strengths. She's <laughs> very organized, very pragmatic, can really make decisions and she's good at the budget, things that I am not mm. great about. <laughs> so we started this really, this is before we had had, before we had kids and we were both a bit younger and we both kind of took on this undertaking from Casey's father, who was the most influential person in my life or career. And he really dreamed of Double H being a kind of family legacy and a family business. And mm-hmm. he always said to us that you do not have to run this farm the same as everyone else does. This does mm-hmm. not have to be the same model as everyone else does this. This can be profitable and sustainable and we can you know, make this work. And he made a career himself from making tough calls mm-hmm. on the railroad and businesses and trying new things and not being afraid to fail at some things and trying again. So he had some ideas that we both said being more in the industry, like seemed totally wacky. We would just give it a go. And so Casey and I said, all right, we're going to do this and try to make it work. And so in the beginning, she and I were doing everything together. Yeah. And then she, okay, now we have two kids. Casey did a couple of individual ventures herself. Uh And so she does now more of the behind the scenes work. Got it. Unfortunately, not very fun stuff sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Billing. Yeah. Scheduling, things like that. Mm-hmm, totally. How is it working with your partner in that capacity? I mean, obviously there's amazing you know, benefits to it and I'm sure there's challenges as well. I have to say, Casey's father used to always say like, you guys are going to get sick of each other because I mean, we're married. We spend yeah. all day together. We work together. We do everything together. Yeah. And that's, yeah. but we've been together for a long time and we've done it like this way for so long. It really yeah. is just our way of doing. So we definitely play off each other's strengths and weaknesses. I mean, mm-hmm. as I said, Casey is much more, I don't know is pragmatic, as I said before, but <laughs> she can be much more realistic on things. You know, yeah. if it was up to me, we would have 
hundreds of horses here and any horse it's like i'm gonna give him another year and see if he exactly. comes along yeah yep. and like we're just gonna keep trying in case this like you know i understand but i think we need to sell this horse mm-hmm. and so she and i work well that way and we definitely do get in some spats about sure. things like that we can yeah. both have a strong opinion but at the end of the day i think we both know our goal in all this is to make this a successful sustainable business and we have to make tough calls sometimes jointly or individually to make mm-hmm. that work and we for the most part do. Absolutely. Yeah. So as you're now doing so much with Double H as far as riding and training, how do you find the balance between focusing on your personal career and then the clients that you are training and working with? That's kind of a constant balancing act for me. And I'm yeah. get, definitely getting better at it. I think that in the last two years, even I've found a better system for that more than I had before. When we first had clients, we went through this kind of boom if we had quite a few clients, a lot of horses, which mm-hmm. is great as far as the business side of things. But we were kind of just happy to have anybody come and yeah. we just wanted to have a, a training business, which we did. And I am very, very invested in our clients' riding and success and career, their own individual riding careers, mm-hmm. which I think is a strength of mine and a weakness because sometimes I found myself getting so focused also on their results and their program, I would take away a bit from my own. Right. And we, I went through at least a season where we had a lot of clients were doing a lot, but my results were kind of there. We were on paper doing well, but I was not for myself where I wanted to be. Sure. And I didn't feel like I was giving myself the opportunity to really do this. When I spoke to Casey's dad one day, Mr. Harrison, and he said to me, he's like, you know, do you really want to ride or do you really want to train? It's like, no, no, I want to ride. Like I love training, Yeah. but I train because I enjoy it, but I train to ride. Right to make this business work. And he said, okay, then let's be serious about that. And he said, I'm not expecting you to be out here having, you know, 50 clients and Mm -hmm. riding one horse a day. Like we do this to it at the top level of the sport, which was great. And he's, you know, was an amazing person to say the thing that I was probably thinking myself, but was afraid to say. Yeah. So we restructured things a bit after that and thought we are going to make this more of a boutique, like better term training business. Yeah. And I take my hat off to Missy Clark, Andre Dignelli, Station Man, people like that big businesses right. that run the gamut of ponies to hunters, to yeah. jumpers. That's amazing. And I mm-hmm. don't really understand how they do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Even though it's I work for them, I still can't really understand it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that is not me. And I think mm-hmm. the way that we want to do this and also the way the sport is going, in my opinion, mm-hmm. is people want to have really high quality training and more individualized attention and time. And I think that's how I found the balance this better is we may, may have the volume might be smaller, but the quality mm-hmm. is going to be higher. And I'm going to be able to give more time to the people that we are training and their results will show, which right. will make them hopefully want to continue to buy a horse or keep training with us or support my career. Maybe have a part of a horse for me or whatever it is. Totally. I do the best job for them and hopefully that pays dividends for myself and for the business. Yeah. I think really understanding the long-term plan is so important and you could have like a whole slew of clients, but is it a revolving door or is it a group of people that really want to stick around and be a part of it? And that's amazing that you were able to figure that out and pivot and, and make the necessary changes for sure. It took us a little bit of figuring out for sure. Yeah. And also there's some people who want to ride and they want to have, you know, two horses or whatever it is, or uh-huh. one horse or 10 horses. And but they want to go to the show and just have a couple lessons a week and enjoy it and do it because they love the horses and the sport, right. which, which is great. I think for me, I found that the most success I've had in training is people who are somewhat like-minded to me in the sense of, you know, like they want to do this to push themselves to be as best 
as they can be, and they want to see how far they can go. And if we make goals that seem totally out of the realm of positive of reality, uh-huh. I'd rather that as a trainer yeah. than somebody who just wants to kind of have fun and do it the level they are now. I think yeah. at this point in my career, I'm really invested in their careers and I want them to be pushing themselves. Yeah. Both type of client is totally fine, but I think it's really yeah. cool that you've been able to recognize the difference and that your skill set works better with a certain type of client. Definitely. Yeah. What would you say is an area of the industry that you are particularly passionate about that you feel like the rest of the industry either doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk enough about? I could probably have many answers to that question, yeah. but I think actually this business and what I feel and Casey and I both feel this kind of change in the wind that's coming in as far as clients and horse sales and business and transparency and media. I think there's a shift that's been going on over the Mm -hmm. last four or five years in our industry as in every industry. And I think the people are a lot more informed and educated than they mm-hmm. maybe used to be. You know, you can find any video of a horse any around the world now. You can find Clip My Horse or on YouTube or something. You can yeah. find a video of a horse where before your trainer might say, oh, here, here's a video of a horse mm-hmm. and this is what it is. And you go off their word. Sure. We're trying to really make our business as transparent uh-huh. and as honest as possible and trying to do things in a bit of a new way. And I think a lot of people Mm -hmm. in this industry kind of get stuck in the same way of doing things. If you're a kid, you learn from one person, you think I'm going to run my business exactly the same way, which that's because if one model works for one person, it doesn't work for everybody. Right. And we have found that not being afraid to try new things, to think slightly outside the box and to push ourselves is beneficial. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I feel like there's just this kind of stigma in this sport sometimes. I mean, listen, this is the old like sport of kings and people just do this in a, yeah. you know, yeah. this old stuffy way that why can't you work with something, work through media to be able to get yourselves better sponsors? Or why can't you put yourself out there in a way that's different than anyone else and be afraid that if I do a training style, that's going to turn people off because it's not the same run of the mill. I just think this industry has a lot to grow. And I think clients and people who own these horses and have their children riding horses, these are most of the time, anyone doing this has expendable income, to be honest. Horses are very expensive. And I don't think anyone that is showing down here in Florida is spending their last dollar on the horse they own. But I think unfortunately that is taken in a way from a lot of people in the industry that, oh, you know, this money doesn't matter to these people and we can, exactly. You know, I'm not saying take advantage of people, but they kind of are casual with it. This is mm-hmm. a lot of money. This is very expensive horses. This is a very expensive sport. There's a lot of time and effort and financial risk that goes into this. And I think people are way too casual with that, in my opinion. Yeah. Definitely. And I think being aware of that and trying to make our business successful from being transparent mm-hmm. and giving people all that information they want is really important for us. A hundred percent. Yeah. I think that that's such a good point. The conversation has definitely started, but it's something that people need to talk about much more. And I feel like a kind of an offshoot of that is it's also so great to see that you've incorporated business advice and help from an outside source, you know, out of the equestrian bubble. And I think that that's, you know, having that in Casey's dad has probably been so monumental for 
double H because you've been able to kind of take those risks. And I think what you were touching on, a a lot of people don't necessarily think to look at other business models from outside sources and, and see how that could maybe work. And yeah, I think that that was maybe risky to pave that way, but it's obviously paid off. Yeah, I think it, and listen, we hope that it keeps going in the direction as that we're going. We had last thing I'll say is that that is one person, Joe Farr, just as I said before, is kind of been a, a mentor of mine for a long time after working yeah. for him. And if anything, Joe doesn't say one word that it is not necessary. Like he says yeah. the minimum amount of words in every sentence. <laughs> but he is deadly honest about horses, about in training, mm. never rude, but just kind of says it exactly as it needs to be said wow. slowly and, and deliberately. And we were talking to him once. This is, I think, 12 years ago, 11 years ago, maybe to be exact, about starting about our business. And Joe, what do you think we should do? And how should we break out of this mold? And if you want to sell horses or train, and he said, look, it will take you 10 years. I'm like, Joe, that's not, you're crazy. What are you talking about? And he's like, yeah. it will take you 10 years to become, I'm not saying profitable, but somewhat successful. And it takes that long for people to understand, you know, if it's selling horses or training people, you have a... yeah. Product that is in the flash and pan, you stand behind things at the horse. If you sell a horse and it doesn't go right, you're going to take the horse back, make it right, help people find the solution. You're not going to leave people, you know, stranded with something that doesn't work. You're going to be stand up good business people. And I kind of like, sure, Joe, we'll do that in two years. That's ridiculous. And last year was our 10th year. <laughs> and I think in Florida, we sold eight horses and they were great horses and we had our mm-hmm. best year of business ever. Wow. And we had clients doing well. And I thought like, damn it, Joe was right. Oh, Joe, <laughs> so, Joe. Joe does it again. <laughs> it just, you know, it takes time. And I think our, we're starting to see the dividends of it now. Wow. And we hope that it keeps going that way and we keep pushing along. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Quentin, for taking the time to come on the podcast. And uh, I wish you all the best. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week.